If you are new with us, we have been taking a break from our study of Romans, and we are now walking through the Psalms of Ascent, which essentially are road trip songs uh, that the pilgrims sang on their way home to Jerusalem, where they would worship the Lord and, uh, and present themselves before Him. So we are today in Psalm 123. It's a short psalm, and it has a kind of a surprising ending uh, to it, and so I hope you'll be with us, uh, be uh, excited to study with us today as we go through it. Asking for help requires a good deal of humility that does not come natural to us. You see, we don't mind so much being helpers, but to be the helped, the ones in need, is quite another thing. Human pride tends to be abhorrent toward the thought of being found needy, weak, inadequate, incompetent, or any of these other words that we tend to associate with needy people. It's one of the reasons why so many of us never ask for help or even prayer. And if things get so bad that we do ask for help, we often follow up our requests with all sorts of nuance, a great deal of nuance, don't we? I normally wouldn't ask you for prayer because I'm a pretty cool cucumber, but my wife is worried. It's not that I'm any, in any real financial pinch. After all, I'm going to be able to pay you back in a couple weeks, so it's not like I'm really asking you for money. I'm not, not one of these people, right? We, we tend to follow up our request for help with all kinds of nuance. In part, it's because we're prideful. Pride tends to downplay our need for help, whether it be denying the need outright or lessening the extensity of the need. However, in the eyes of Scripture, neediness is a virtue. Now, before you pull your guns out and shoot me for heresy, we're going to see how this plays out. Neediness is a virtue, especially as it applies to our relationship with God. Psalm 123 takes our need as God's people and it brings it to the forefront. At the most fundamental basic level, pilgrims of the Lord, pilgrims who are on their way to see the Lord, are those who live in a joyful, willing recognition of their need for the Lord's mercy. That's what it means to be a pilgrim. This psalm is all about having humility to recognize our need and then to look up to God for help in times of trouble. That's what Psalm 123 teaches us to do. We know nothing about the historical background of Psalm 123. We do not even know who specifically wrote it. We don't know if it was David. We don't know if it was a psalmist sometime during the exile generation. We don't know what specific problem he was facing and why he was writing this particular psalm. All we know is that the psalmist, whoever he is, and his people have become the object of derision. That means they're being made fun of, they're being looked down upon. This is a time when it's not, necess- it's not necessarily a great time or an advantageous time to be a Christian or to be a follower of Yahweh at that point. Whatever they were going through, whatever they were facing, whatever difficulty that left, had left them asking, had left them saying, we've had enough. We've had enough. Whatever it was, it was so bad that all they could say is, we've had enough. The fact that we do not know the specific struggle makes this psalm relevant for all kinds of difficult situations. 
Whatever suffering, hardship, or derision you might be facing, this is a psalm for you. If we listen closely, we can hear the desperation in the author's voice. We can hear the desperation in the psalmist and learn how to become desperate with him for the Lord's help in our own difficult situations. Not to avoid the need, not to nuance the need, not to reject or deny the need, but to embrace the need for the Lord's mercy and to come as needy people. In the psalm, here's what we find. God's people are being marginalized and looked down upon. This is why the psalm is so tough to date. We don't, we, you can't just look at the Hebrew and date the psalm, right? Again, we don't know who it was. Because when have God's people not been marginalized, have not been treated with contempt and looked down upon? God's people throughout all time have experienced this similar derision. Whether it's eye rolls or bitter persecution, contempt in the world's eyes is par for the course when it comes to following God. In some countries, like Lebanon or, or in some more Muslim countries, Christians face the most brutal of attacks for their open faith. In our context, we face some furrowed eyebrows anytime we take a convictional stance on any topic, anytime we're invited to speak about life or about uh, the way things should be done, whatever, any kind of convictional stance we take, we know what it's like to have that furrowed eyebrows, like you're those weird Christians, aren't you? Some look at us like we're intellectually inferior. You don't really believe in all those old fairy tales, do you? Others look at us as if our very existence and our beliefs are a crime against humanity. Here's the shocker for you, though. None of this is new. None of it's new. It's not even all that abnormal. In fact, from a wide view of history, it's relatively good compared to what it's been. <laughs> None of this is new. Throughout history, God's people have not just been marginalized and pushed to the margin. We have flourished in the margins. We are those who didn't get the CEO positions because of our beliefs. We are those who didn't get to run the country because of our belief. And yet we flourished and thrived anyway because of our relationship with the Savior. Scripture describes us as exiles and sojourns who have been dispersed in a world that is not our home. Furthermore, just considering that the fact that the world through all ages, ranging all the way back to Psalm 2, where it talks about the leaders and the nations and the kings raging against the Lord and his anointed one, it's no surprise that a world that rages against God is gonna rage against you, God's people. You see, our world wants a world that is sanitized of God's authority wiped clean of it. it. God's authority, God's way of doing things is a filth in this world that needs to be eradicated. So naturally, this makes logical sense that those of us who live under and speak about God's authority are a direct threat to that. And that comes from both sides of the political spectrum. Anytime we as God's people bring God into the picture, it can be a direct threat to both Republicans, Democrats, non-parties, or big, big massive kings over across the sea. It doesn't matter. What the world feels threatened by is this idea that God is in control, that God is king. And so naturally, the king's people would receive the brunt of that. They can't harm the invisible king. 
but they can set themselves up against the visible people of God. You see, in this world, we just must bear it as a point of fact that following Christ means taking up crosses, being led outside city gates, enduring crucifixion and mocking, and then being left to wait for God's vindication. I don't know why we... That, that's a refreshing message to hear, I hope, because I think we've forgotten that, right? We, we tend to think... We, we've fallen into this relatively comfortable time in this really short span of world history where it's okay to be a public Christian. And, and, that, and I'm just telling you, the 200 and something years of this relative comfortability is not that normal when you look at thousands of years of world history. Okay, it's just... It's just this isn't normal. What we get to, even what we're doing right now, this might not be your favorite time of life in American history, but even what you're getting to do right now is not that normal. But I, I think it's just, let me, let me just help you understand. There is no other path. Every path that a Christian walks leads up Golgotha. Every road. There is no Christian life, there's no Christian road that leads to forever prosperity and never suffering. There's no road that a Christian can walk. There's no pilgrimage that you can take that will lead to popularity, massive influence, and everybody liking you at the same time. The road that a Christian must walk, the one and only narrow road that we go down, leads up Golgotha to busted up tombs and then to a resurrection. We have a U-shaped life where every single one of us follows Joseph, David, Daniel, and then Jesus himself as we go down to the pit in suffering and are exalted in our resurrection. That's the road that we must take. There is no other road. So, so just accept it as a fact. If you are going to be a follower of Christ, there is nothing else but to bear crosses and die in hopes of vindication in the future. Because the world's contempt on God's people is the norm, and because we don't know when Psalm 123 was written, Psalm 123 really has no shelf life. You see, it applies to us wherever we are. Instructs us in how to join God's people of all ages. God's people in the Old Testament. God's people in the early New Testament. God's people throughout the world today to join with them as we suffer, as we groan, as we trust, as we look up to our Lord. See, that's my biggest fear about the Western church right now is we've come to the harsh reminder that following Jesus means suffering. Most of our angst is not about people rejecting God. Most of our angst is not about things not being done in God's way. Most of our angst is a loss of comfort. Most of our frustration is a loss to do as we wish comfortably. And yet this psalm says, eh, you're going to be in the margins. You're going to lose money being a Christian. You know, those days back in the 60s where even your lawyer went to church because you would not have a non-Christian lawyer, Right? Those days where you shopped at the gas station because they closed on Sundays because that's what Christians should do, right? That's what, that's what the thought was anyway, and so you wouldn't shop at a gas station open on Sundays. I mean, those days, those days are far behind us, and they weren't really all that normal anyway or good. It opened up the church to all kinds of hypocrisy, 
where now a lawyer uses Christianity as a tool, as a, as a marketing ploy, where presidents begin standing up on platforms claiming to be born-again Christians, knowing that they must do that if they're going to get voted in. That wasn't good. That wasn't a good time. It's a relatively bad time. The good times is when the church accepts its place in the margins. Because we know that the Lord doesn't meet us in the center of power. The Lord meets us in the margins, doesn't he? He meets us in our suffering. This is why Chinese persecuted Christians have such an amazing flourishing relationship with the Lord. It's because they've learned how to love the Lord in the margins and to meet him there sweetly. They're not, if, if, if you're not gonna sign up for the Communist Party, which means denouncing Jesus Christ in China, then you're not gonna get the CEO job. So to be a Christian means, okay, I'll sweep floors and have my identity in Christ. Being a Christian in China means, yeah, I'm not gonna sign the manifesto that says that uh, religion is the opium of the people. Instead, I'm just gonna be happy being, living in obscurity. Psalm 123 reminds us that we don't need to be afraid of the margins. We don't need to be afraid of the contempt that we receive, but we can flourish and thrive in the margins as God's people. We can thrive in obscurity in poverty, in joblessness, in being passed over all the promotions because we're Christians. Why? Because our king sees us, loves us, and meets with us even there. I hope that's good news for you. The psalmist says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Here the emphasis is not on what the psalmist says, but on what the psalmist on where the psalmist sets his eyes, right? His main emphasis is not on what he cries or on what he speaks, but on where he looks. In Psalm 121, the psalmist lifted his eyes up to the hills. In this psalm, however, things have gone so bad, he's like, ah, the hills aren't gonna do it. We're going higher, <laughs> right? He lifts his eyes to the one enthroned in the heavens. Now, in the Old Testament, and really throughout the whole Bible, the orientation of our eyes betrays the center of our trust. Wherever we look, what, despite what you say, you can say, I trust the Lord, but wherever you look at, whatever you look to help is what you are putting your center of your trust in. So, so let's look at a few examples of this. Psalm 25, 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. We get Psalm 141, 8. The psalmist writes, but my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Where does the psalmist look in that passage? Not to city walls, not to fortresses, not to armies and allies or anything like that, not to weaponry, but to the Lord who is his refuge, who will not leave him defenseless. So in a context of suffering and hardship, the psalmist is deliberate to show that he looks to the Lord not to all the things we would naturally go to. If we were in the psalmist day and, and we've got this aggressive, arrogant people trying to kill us and murder us, it might be tempting to gather, call the Egyptians, get the Egyptians on the phone. Um, it might be tempting to say, get the walls of Jerusalem a little higher, build them up, make a better fortress. But the psalmist lifts his eyes beyond all human hope and beyond even himself and he looks to the one who's enthroned above the heavens. This is the faith of a pilgrim. 
The author's depiction of God being enthroned in the heavens displays the Lord's transcendent sovereignty over all things. Just think of it. Enthroned in the heavens, which means he's, he's enthroned over every political system that exists in this world. He's enthroned over every ruler. He's enthroned ever, over every businessman and company and high-up CEO. He's enthroned over every weather system, every current that goes in the ocean. He's enthroned above it all. He's transcendent above it all. That's the word that we use. Transcendent means to be far up and far above, not to be naturally a part of, right? He's not contained in time and space. He's not contained under any kind of political government. He's above it all. He's transcendent. And yet, the one who is seated on a throne that extends beyond the Milky Way still hears the quiet whispers for mercy. How incredible is that? One commentator puts it this way, sitting in the heavens does not suggest remoteness or non-involvement in this world, but rather that Yahweh is enthroned and from there as sovereign Yahweh can and does come to intervene in the world down below the palace. He who is high above all things makes himself accessible to his lowly people. His transcendence, his highness, does not negate his nearness. Doesn't cancel it out. Just because God is high and above all things and supreme and sovereign, he's still the God who hears you when you can do nothing else but groan in the middle of the night. Hears you singularly out of all the people of this world. The God who sovereignly reigns over all the cosmos is the God who just loves you with every every fiber of your being and listens when you suffer and knows the hardship you go through. He knows your fears before they even come. That high and holy transcendent God is an intimate father who loves you as his children. Those that are his people, he loves you and he, he draws you to himself so here's the psalmist's goal. <coughs> I don't have COVID. I just have allergies. <coughs> you know, for those in the back, I could use a bottle of water if you... Uh, I'm crying out for mercy here. Maybe somebody <laughs> will hear. The psalmist's goal is to get us to look up, right? Not to look around, not to look at ourselves, not to look at the one who brings the water bottle, but to actually look up. So at this moment, everybody can just look up. In the process of looking up, just look up. Thank you, Breck, I appreciate it. Wow, look at that, answered prayer, okay. In the process of looking up, I think we have to address all the other things that we, look to help, we tend to look to help for, right? I don't think we can ever be fully convinced that the Lord is sufficient until we're persuaded that all the other things we put our trust in are insufficient. Those two things come together. The people who have learned that the Lord is sufficient typically are those who have weathered battles and storms in their life where they found everything else insufficient. Everything else fell short. And this is also why the Bible spends so much time comparing the incomprehensibility of our God where he's just so high and powerful that we can't even understand him. And it displays his matchless qualities as well as showing how other things fall short. Read Ecclesiastes, for example, right? Ecclesiastes is... You would think a terribly depressing book, but it's actually encouraging in that it show, it systematically displays 
the vapor-like nature. Doesn't doesn't say these things are bad. It doesn't say these things are evil. It's just they're vapor-like, meaning they go away. They they end at some point. They have a shelf life. Things like wealth, work, possessions, pleasure, all those things are great and should be enjoyed as gifts from the Lord, but they're gifts, not the giver. They're temporary gifts given by an eternal giver. So the whole point of Ecclesiastes is to systematically show, okay, great. You get good health. Good health eventually ends, but enjoy the good health while you have it. You have work. Great. Everyone must retire or die at the job. Enjoy work while you have it. Money. Great. Money will fail. Dollar systems depreciate. I mean, it's just just the way it goes. Enjoy it as a gift, but fear the Lord and love the giver. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. The fact is, I think oftentimes we confuse the gifts for the giver in our pursuit of trying to cling the gift, good health, good life, comfortability, all these things. We forget about the one who has given all those things in their due season and who gives us other things in their due season. He gives us times to build up and then he sends us times where it's time to tear down. There's times that we gather and times that we scatter. There's, there's just, he's the one who's over all those things and all those things, as great as they are, they must not be treated as the thing themselves, as the, the one that we're living for. If you live for good health, I have a friend right now that's just fascinated by health and he's learning about food as fuel and all this kind of stuff. He's, he's, he's just fascinated by health. Not a believer, um, and it's, it's tricky having tea with him because it's like, okay, how do you take something that's clearly good, but show him that, okay, your blood tests are eventually gonna ring up something negative, something bad. Your heart rate is one day gonna stop. The same conversation about a guy that gets a promotion. I mean, it's just, it's just over and over, we must be careful not to make these lesser things that fall short into God itself because the whole point is that God is incomprehensible. He is beyond all things, not the gifts that he gives. Whenever people begin to trust in their wealth, their security, or an idol, scripture asks the question almost always, who is like the Lord our God? With this question, scripture forces us to contrast the object in which we have wrongly placed our hope and to contrast it against the Lord and all his goodness. And when this contrast is made, no matter how dear the object is, it can be a relationship, it can be your children, it can be your country. It can be all kinds of things. When scripture begs you to make the contrast between the things that you love and the Lord above all things, Inevitably, what we find is that the Lord is totally, unequivocally glorious, majestic, powerful, and loving in a way that nothing else is. He is beyond comparison. Everything else falls short. He's enthroned above all, and yet he hears our most intimate prayers. Therefore, this God who's above all, we look to him, not to the things that he gives, and we trust in him, in him alone. I think this exercise in remembering the vapor-like nature of other things in the eternal, majestic, and personal nature of our God is helpful in evaluating how we drift in our faith. If you're in the psalmist's sandals, 
facing contempt and derision from others, how would you respond? Where would you place your hopes? Would you hope in your financial stability? Maybe you can avoid contempt because you're rich. I mean, who can hate a rich person, right? They have a lot of money. So maybe we can avoid the world's contempt because we have a lot of money. Or would you trust in your influential friends? After all, having powerful friends can protect you from having powerful enemies. Or maybe you would trust in your charming personality and your hard work ethic to save you from trouble. You pulled yourself up from your own, by your own bootstraps before, maybe you can do it again. Well, the psalm seeks to reorient your hope and trust to where you no longer look to all these external things primarily. When contempt comes, when the pressure heats up, we should look to God who is enthroned in the heavens. Pilgrims are people who have an exclusive trust in the Lord. We, we, we trust in him and in nothing else. We trust in him and him alone. So what does this trust look like? The psalmist compares it with the way a servant looks to his master or a maidservant looks to her mistress. These two metaphors highlight dependence. Just as a servant looks to the hand of his master for food or provision, the psalmist and his people look to the Lord for mercy. This is, the, this is neediness at its best. At its best. That's the metaphor he makes with God's people. We are like servants who are watching our master's hand for provision. That is about as needy of a metaphor as you can get. There's only one place from which mercy can come, and it is from the hand of the Lord. Therefore, his eyes and his people's eyes look to him. Now, the phrase, till he has mercy upon us, in verse 2, adds a connotation of expectancy. The servant humbly expects his master to provide. He should, right? The master is a good provider, so he should expect his master to provide. So also the people of Israel expect that the Lord will give mercy. In other words, for the psalmist and for his people, it's not a matter of if the Lord will show mercy, but when the Lord shows mercy. This is confident but dependent expectation that defines the pilgrim's faith. God will give his people mercy. And so his people should look up to him now with humble dependence and faith-filled expectation. Faith-filled expectation. I want to make a little bit of a qualification, though, that may not be clear from the text. Expectation is not the same as presumption. Expecting God to show mercy requires your dependence and humility, while presuming God will show mercy is based in pride. This psalmist is expectant. He's not presumptuous. He comes to the Lord in humble dependence, looking to him in humility with expectation. To be presumptuous would be a totally different thing. Expectation says, God is the sovereign king who loves his people, and so I look to him knowing he will show me mercy. Presumption says, I'm a fairly good guy, so why shouldn't God give me mercy? If God's gonna give anybody mercy, it's definitely me. That's presumptuous now, isn't it? There's a big difference between those two. Expectation based in humility, presumption based in pride. Expectation is accompanied by prayer. It's about as humble as a Christian can get is to pray. Expectation is accompanied by prayer and petition. Presumption, on the other hand, here's how we know we're being presumptuous. 
is when we live confidently that the Lord's going to give mercy, but we don't ever pray. That's presumption. The psalmist's prayers for mercy reveal that he is expectant, not presumptuous. He says that he's going to look to the Lord till he has mercy, until he has mercy, knowing that he knows he will. But then he prays, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. While he expects the Lord to intervene, his expectation leads him to make urgent and persistent prayers. You see, in life, we are constantly being pulled into one of two ditches. Sometimes when trouble comes, we lose complete confidence in the Lord, right? We just, we just utterly despair. We lose that expectation that he's going to work. And therefore, we, believe, we fail to believe that he will deliver us at the right time, even when the cancer gets worse, even when the money looks bad, even when our friends forsake us. We lose that expectation and it all just goes you know, down the pit. We're just, we're not even... We're not even expecting the Lord to work anymore. At other times, we forget to pray and just presume that God will do what he wants. Ah, he's gonna do what he wants to anyway, right? In this case, there's a form of expectation that God's going to do something, but yet it's a failure to match that expectation with humility and dependence. Psalm 123 teaches us to avoid both pitfalls. We look to God with humble, dependent expectation, and in that expectation, we humbly pray for his mercy, trusting that he is happy to give it. This is what, what Peter is getting at when he says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, that we should do what? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And how do you humble yourselves? by casting all your cares upon him, knowing he cares for you. You see, a prayerless heart is a prideful heart. A heart that never comes to God with expectation and humble dependence is one that is based in pride, one that is refusing to ask for help. We should never despair, and we should never presume. God knows we need mercy, right? He knows we need mercy. We believe he will give us mercy, those two things are great truths, right? God knows you need mercy. He sees you where, we, where you're at. He will give mercy. But something tells me he still likes to be asked for mercy anyway. Those two things are not against each other. To know that God is sovereign and will work and to ask him to work are two sides of the coin of faith. And that's what it means to be pilgrim. It takes humility to look for help that comes from the outside or from above our own power and ability. Pride tempts us to look to our own resources, our allies, our skills, or anything else we might think of. And typically, if we're honest, we only lift our eyes after things get really bad, only after all these other things fail us. It's like when, when we lose the vote or when we lose our money or when we lose our health or when we lose our friends or whatever, oh, I guess now we should pray. Psalms is like, you should always be dependent on God. You should never look to those other things. Even as a first case scenario, these, these things are not like, okay, if, if A fails, then go to B. If B fails, then go to C. And if all those fail, then finally you pray. That's not how it works. We said last week, God has a tendency to knock out crutches from his people to show them that they rest on him, not on crutches. 
We trust and know and have a dependent faith that looks at God day by day, knowing that our infinite and transcendent God sees even our subtlest upward glances to him for help. We come now to verse three, to the crisis itself. The reason the psalmist cries out for help. He says this, we have had more than enough contempt Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. Now, if I were to ask you what the biggest problems in life and our world are, you probably would not answer prideful people, right? On a list of all the things that are wrong in our world, I've heard people talk about violence and corruption and false media and oppression and all these different kinds of things. But proud people might not make the top three. So what's the psalmist getting at when he says that he's had more than enough of the contempt of the proud? Why is proud people, why is that the the crux of his problem? One commentator explains, other things can bruise. War can bruise. Uh, Violence can bruise. All these other things can bruise. But prideful contempt is cold steel. It hurts. And it wounds In the Psalms, all evil flows from a proud heart, which is why you should be worried when you find pride in yourself. All evil flows from a proud heart. All evil. For example, Psalm 10, 2 says, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. The the, the motivation for their pursuing the poor is arrogance. In Psalm 17, 10, a pitiless heart, a heart that doesn't give a rip about other people, is evidenced by an arrogant mouth. Pride is the source of evil. Pride can lead a person to self-justify almost any action. How so? Well, the flip side of pride, which I think we could define pride as an obsessive love for self, the flip side of an obsessive love for self is a lack of love for others and for God. When the self and its desires are first, then there is no limit to what one will do to another in order to protect or provide for the self's interest. When a man puts his sexual cravings first, look at what can happen. When a man puts his greedy desires to be the wealthiest one first, look at what can happen. When people make their lives more important than those around them, look at what can happen. Pride is the fountainhead of this evil that we see. This is why Lewis once described pride as the chief cause of misery in every nation, in every family since the world began. The oppressive scorn and contempt poured out by those who are proud and who are at ease, literally the carefree, on the weather-beaten, trial-ridden pilgrims of God is why the psalmist leads out for, cries out for mercy. It's why he makes his prayer in the first place. Now, again, I've got to speak with qualification. It's hard to talk about suffering knowing that we have brothers and sisters all around the world that go through it way worse than we do. But anyone who has had exposure to the world and to our culture knows what such contempt can look like. Some places it looks like jail time. Some places it looks like actually losing your life. In our context, it's being treated as the outcast, as those that don't know anything. Like I said before, this contempt is not new. Can't really claim it's all that worse than what it's been. 
when you look at the wide, his, the wide history of the view, world. When you look at it in your lifetime, yeah, it, it's getting bad. But when you look at it outside of yourself and you try not to look at your own life and you look at the lives of thousands of generations, well, yeah, it's not all that new nor that bad, <laughs> you know, comparatively. In the psalmist's day, God's people were mocked for believing in one invisible God who left no images of himself. In the Babylonian exile, they were mocked for retaining a hope in their God whose temple had been destroyed. How can you continue trusting in a God whose house got burnt down? In the Roman days, they were treated like superstitious outcasts whose views and practices were so misunderstood that local leaders like Pliny the Elder actually thought that Christians gathered to eat a man's flesh and drink his blood. And that's why they deserved to die. They were cannibals. Obviously, you and I know we're talking about the Lord's Supper, right? Where we don't actually eat a man's flesh and blood, but the symbolism is there. And for the Romans, they were like, that's weird. You guys talking about eating Jesus' body and blood, that's weird. They killed them because they were thinking they were cannibalistic, superstitious people. Contempt and the weirdness of being Christian has always been there. In an Islamic context, there are people who are, who are facing contempt because of the concept of three persons and only one God. It just doesn't make sense now, does it? Not to mention the absurdity of one of those divine persons condescending to take on human flesh. That's weird. Why do you believe that? In a postmodern, materialistic context in which we live, Christians are treated as strange because we believe in a deeper reality, in a heavenly country, in a spiritual life, in a resurrection, in an eternal life. That's all weird when there's nothing but material around us, right? So name a time that Christians have not lived in contempt and obscurity. Name a time we haven't been marginalized people. It's only when we get so wrapped up in ourselves that we think that our suffering is new and odd. But when we begin to look at the horizon as our collective part in God's people, it's par for the course. It's just a way of life. Now, our response to this contempt should not be that we develop some kind of persecution complex. That is a terrible tragedy to walk around like some joyless, beaten-down people. Instead, we live as people who are not surprised by the contempt, and we live with our eyes up. We live with our eyes up. We live trusting that a great reversal is coming, that the Lord will preserve the, fa the faithful and will abundantly repay the one who acts in pride. We can pray, we've had enough. We've had enough knowing that the Lord will one day vindicate his people and keep his promise. We can make honest laments like the psalmist because we have a trust that the, Lord, that the Lord hears. So as we come to the end of the psalm, we're, we're finding a lot of connection with the psalmist if we're open to the eyes of our own suffering and affliction. Now here's a question that I had because it ends just like that. We've had enough. And I'm like waiting for verse five or verse six to say, and the Lord answered from on high and my enemies scattered. I was like, nothing? This is a terrible psalm, psalmist. I'm, I'm, like, I'm like doing research to try to figure out, did they only find half of it? Was there like scraps that they left behind in the cave somewhere? Like, 
Like, what in the world? It's not supposed to end this way. We've had enough. The end. That'd make it for a terrible story. What happened to the psalmist? What happened after he prayed this prayer? Then it dawned on me, even this cliffhanger conclusion can teach us a lot about life, can't it? Namely, it teaches us that we must keep trusting even when we have not yet received an answer. Let me tell you something. Redemption doesn't oftentimes come quickly. There are times in Scripture, rare moments in Scripture, where someone will pray and then fire falls down from heaven. Very rare and few moments. Most of the time, God's people pray for 300 years in Egypt before they see redemption. Most of the time, they suffer three generations under some outside oppressor before God raises up a judge. Sometimes they live generations. Most of the time, they live generations before the Messiah is given. And sometimes God's people die before they see vindication. But here's the point of our faith. You might suffer long, for a long time before you see vindication, or worse, you might die without vindication. But do you trust that God can give vindication even after death? I hope we do, because that's what we see with our Savior, isn't it? Jesus died. It's over. We had hoped he would be the one to save Israel, but it's over. Wait a second. We're talking about the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, most powerful, almighty El Shaddai of all the universe, who raised up his son three days after he died, thereby vindicating him as the son of God. We have a guy, we have a guy, a God, not a guy, a God who did that for our Savior and then promises to do it for us. There are days we live in Psalm 123, just not knowing what in the world's going on. May even die that way. And yet we trust that Psalm 124 is on the horizon. When there will be a day that we can sing of the Lord's vindication that has come, not will come, that has come. So my friends, I just want to invite you to follow this psalmist, to follow Jesus, who as our Savior, the Son of God, received derision, who received contempt from proud and arrogant people who unknowingly were accomplishing the foreordained plan of God that led him outside the city gates as a lamb led to the slaughter to suffer. He languished on the cross while those who were at ease mocked him and told him to save himself. Now, what did he do? He didn't vindicate himself. He didn't come off the cross and go on a murder spree. He didn't gather his disciples as a little militia. What does he do? He dies with eyes upward, looking to the Father, praying for their forgiveness, and trusting that vindication will come. That's how God's people live. We suffer patiently. We read Psalm 123 knowing that has a terrible ending to it because we know that God will give Psalm 124 one day. So whatever suffering and affliction you might be going through, I just want to invite you to the hope of the psalmist. You can groan. You can pray. We've had enough. And trust that your transcendent and infinite God of all the universe hears that prayer 
And that one day you will open your eyes and experience the realities of the beauty of Psalm 124, which we'll look at next week when Rodney preaches for us. And we'll be able to say, had it not been for the Lord. So we wait patiently in the meantime. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we have a Savior who modeled for us what Psalm 123 teaches. He suffered, he died, he groaned on the cross, Father. He was buried and yet he was vindicated even after death. So Lord, we thank you for Psalm 123 and its lessons that teach us how to be patient in suffering. And even more, Father, how to be humble in asking you for mercy. So God, we wait with expectation, but we don't wait with presumption. We expect you to work, but we will daily come to you in prayer, asking you to work. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.